Hi, and welcome to Harvest Bible Chapel, Kuala Lumpur Online. We hope that the following message will be a blessing to you as you seek to walk with the Lord in spirit and in truth. For more information about our church, please visit www.harvestkl.org or click the link in the description below. Well, good morning, Harvest. Uh, I would invite you to take your Bibles and turn them to the Gospel of John. We're going to be looking at John chapter 15 uh, this morning uh, as we start a new series. Actually, it's a new series, but it goes along with an old theme. Uh, The theme for 2020 here at Harvest KL has been to abide. And we've been looking at the Gospel of John, chapter 15, verses 1 to 17. Really, that's been our theme verses for this particular, particular year. And we've been asking the Lord to really teach us what it means to abide in Him. And so as we've looked at this theme, we've taught it a number of different times and and we've seen that really what this text is trying to teach us is how to abide in Christ. And and to do that, uh, Jesus uses a picture of a grapevine and and its branches and how those branches bear fruit and uh, to talk about how it is to abide in Jesus Christ. If you look at John chapter 15, if you're there already, and we look at verse 4, we see the very clear statement. Jesus says, Abide in me, and I in you, as a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. So we're asking God to to work gospel fruit into our life. But this verse is telling us you can't do it when you're separated from the vine. Now, in this illustration here, Jesus is saying, I am the vine and you are the branches. And and so in that, he's saying you have to be attached. You, the branches, have to be attached to me, the vine. And there's this vital union that must exist between Christ and the Christian if we are to actually have life and produce fruit that God wants. So when we think about the word abide, I've taught this to you already. The the word abide really means to remain. It's the inseparable link to Jesus Christ, where we depend upon Him for grace and power to obey and to do uh, what He has called us to, thus producing fruit. It's when we offer our deepest adoration and praise as we submit to Jesus Christ that we truly abide. And so we've learned that the Word of God is essential, that I have to be in the Word of God daily if I'm going to abide and remain in relationship with Christ. We've taught how prayer is an essential element of abiding in Jesus Christ. And as we depend upon Him in prayer, uh, we abide. And then we've seen how the word, this chapter has taught us that we must obey Him. Like if we're obeying Jesus, we're abiding in Him. If we're disobeying Jesus, we actually are detached from Him. And so obedience is a key part of being attached to the vine. In all of this, we're seeing that Jesus is the source of life. And Jesus is the one that sustains our life. And really, when we see the word abide, what we're understanding is that it means salvation. He's the source of eternal life. He's the one that sustains abundant life now and for eternity. When we abide, we are actually receiving the salvation of Jesus Christ. 
But as we begin this new series, I remind you of these concepts of what it means to abide. But I want you to begin to see that while we individually are responsible to be abiding in Christ, that there's an element of community that is required that all of us together uh, get to abide in as well. And so we see here in the text, actually, it's actually made very clear in verse 10. Uh, it, it, uh, verse 10, it tells, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. And then down in verse 12, it says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. And so if we are individually abiding with the vine of Jesus Christ, that means we're obeying his commands. And his command, his first command here is to love each other, to be together in this, that we are to love one another. So I want to start us on a new series called Abide Together. And, and you might be asking, okay, why now? Why, why in the middle of 2020 do we need to look at a series called Abide Together? Well, our elders sensed a need to grow in what it means to be in community with one another. And so that's been a major emphasis of 2020 here at Harvest KL. You've seen that in a number of different studies that we've done, as well as this particular teaching. And what we see here is that really a big part of the abide goal is to rediscover and pursue God's design of gospel-saturated community that promotes and models healthy vulnerability needed for true heart, heart transformation. You see, as a group of elders, we recognize that we, we're lacking on some of these things when it comes to community. And so we make a statement like this where we want to rediscover God's design for gospel-saturated community and to live in the elements of those things. And we've been shaping much of the teaching that happens here at Harvest KO this year around that thing. And so now a series, a specific series that we look together and what it means to abide together in these ways. And actually today, that's the title of the message. It's just simply abide together just to launch us off onto this new series. Uh, as we want to uh, pursue Christ together. And so uh, I want to start us with, a, uh, with the big idea today, the main idea of the text. And it's on the screen here, simply this. Abiding results in pursuing the things that Jesus loves. Uh, maybe said another way, it's remaining in God's love means that I learn how to love what God loves. And really in this series, we're going to look at six different elements that we see God loves these things and he wants us to love them and he teaches us to love them as well. So what does Jesus love? Let's answer that right now. Actually, why don't you go ahead and type your answers into the chat feature as you watch here this morning. The question, remember, is this, what does Jesus love? Why don't you think of some things and just quickly type them in. Let's get a list going in the chat here this morning while I tell you a story to help us understand what the main idea is here. Remember, abiding results in pursuing the things that Jesus loves. So I remember back when I first got married and I found the woman of my dreams. I've committed my undying love to her. And so we began to, we got married, we began to live together and here's what I found. Uh, she grew up in a home that didn't really understand or value sports. And sports was a huge part of my life. So I loved following sports, any and all sports. I'll, I'll watch and participate and look into all of that. And, and one of the things that I did was I got a subscription to a sports magazine called ESPN the Magazine. 
And, and uh, what I found was that my wife loved me even though she didn't love sports. And how I knew that was uh, that, that while she had no clue really what, what sports were all about, uh, she began uh, to, to educate herself using the magazine that I had. And she would come out every once in a while and she would come out with these wild statements that were completely uncharacteristic of her. She would say something like, did you see the wonder goal that Jurgen Klopp scored when he was a player? Or, or she would say something like, man, Rizzo has hit, hit a lot of home runs in, a, in baseball here this, this year. And I knew, I just knew, she didn't really understand or know or are interested in that, but she had read a paragraph, she had done a little reading and understood from my magazine, and she was, because I loved sports and she loved me, she was trying to make a connection with me around the things that I loved. Well, it took me a little bit longer, uh, but uh, squash in salads and long drawn out conversations and HD, HGTV shows are all things that I used to dislike, but now I enjoy because they're what my love enjoys. As my love for her deepens, I've begun to love the things that she loves. And the same thing happens when we love Jesus more and more. And so that's why it's important to ask, do you know what Jesus loves? So that list is probably rolling on the screen right now in our chat uh, here. And what, what I really want you to see here this morning is that abiding in Jesus results in me pursuing the things that Jesus loves. So look at John chapter 15, verse 9. It says this, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. Really, that's the verse that's going to launch us out here this morning to help us understand what Jesus loves and why we have to pursue the things he loves and how that changes us and brings us together as a church body. So what does Jesus love? Well, Jesus loves, did you say me? Right? Maybe it was from the children's song, Jesus Loves Me. You remembered that song. Maybe it's from John 15, verse 9. You, uh, Abide in my love. You, uh, he, he loves me. That's what that said. I know that Jesus loves justice. I'm so glad he loves justice. Jesus loves obedience. And Jesus loves, loves cheerful hearts. Listen, the list could go on and on and on, but I want to look at two vitally important concepts about what Jesus loves here this morning and how that brings us together as a church body. The first is this. Write this down. Jesus loves the church. I am loved. I'm loved because Jesus loves the church. And as a believer, as somebody who is a, a, a converted to Christianity and, and is going to church, and, and Jesus loves this thing called the church. I'm gonna show you and explain to you this in a minute, but as I'm part of the church, he loves me as I'm a part of those who are part of his family in the church body. And so remember, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. That's Jesus speaking here. So, so the Father loves Jesus, that's the first phrase, and then Jesus says, in the same way I've loved you, so the same way that the Father loves Jesus is how Jesus loves you. That's mind-blowing, 
that, that's mind-boggling to think that, that, that the perfect love of the Father, God the Father, towards God the Son, that perfect relationship and the, the incredibly immense and perfect love between those two, that's how Jesus loves you. And then that's why he says, abide in my love. There is no greater offer in this world. There is no greater thing that we could possibly have than the perfect, perfect love between the Father and the Son in, our, in the Godhead, in the Trinity, that that would be offered to us is an amazing and astounding and almost unbelievable gift. And in that, Jesus says, abide in my love. How do we do that? How, how do we abide in the love of Jesus? Well, well, here's the simple answer, and then I'm going to try to unpack it here for us in a second. Here's the answer. Disciples who are, lo- who are loved, love God and love people. How do we abide in this love? Well, Jesus is actually teaching here that if we're going to abide in the, this perfect love, this amazing offer, then we should love God and love people. That's how we remain in that perfect love that's being offered to us by Jesus Christ. We abide in Christ's love when we love what Jesus loves. And Jesus here is saying, I love the Father. And we're going to see in a moment here, he's going to say, I love people. I love the people of the church in particular. And so if we love those things, if we learn to love what Jesus loves, that's how we abide in love. Now we're going to be talking about what God loves over the next six Sundays. And we're going to look at six different pursuits is what we call them. Things that we are pursuing to pursue the love of Jesus Christ. And really in our logo, you see all the different symbols that are there. One represents each of these pursuits. And we're going to unpack that over the series. But we have to start with a foundation. And that's really what we're doing here today. And and at the very core of the foundation is this truth. Jesus loves the church. Let me show you three passages of Scripture to really help you understand what Jesus loves as we seek to pursue the same thing that He does. So in Ephesians chapter 5, we see that Jesus gave Himself up for the church. Look at Ephesians 5 verse 25. It says this, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her that he might sanctify her and cleanse her by the washing of the water and the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle uh, or any such thing, that uh, she should be holy and without blemish. Jesus is talking about how he loves the church here and using that as an illustration for how husbands are supposed to love their wives. So usually we look at this passage in in a marriage class, but really what we see here is that that what the text is teaching us is how Jesus loves the church. He gave himself up for her, which goes right along with what John 15 says love actually is. After Jesus commands that we should love one another, he says this, Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. That's Jesus. That's what Jesus did. Jesus gave himself up for his bride, the church. He died for the church, for those who would be in the church. That's you and I who have believed in Jesus Christ. So sacrifice 
of oneself for another is the greatest act of love, is what we're seeing. And that's what Jesus did for the church. He loves the church immensely. So John is writing this gospel. John 15 is actually the record of Jesus speaking, and John being one of the disciples records what he said here. But later on, John actually expands and helps us understand what this kind of love is when he wrote his own epistle, when the Holy Spirit led him to write 1 John. And what we see here in 1 John chapter 4, verses 10 to 12, is three really important verses. It says, In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, yet if we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. So three things I want you to notice here. The first is this. Uh, this is the love. This is love defined. It's as God sends His Son. In verse 10, it tells us to be the propitiation. Now, propitiation is a big theological word, but it's one we should get familiar with. And so let me just describe it here. Propitiation has the idea of a sacrifice that turns away the wrath of God. So God rightly regarding us, apart from Him, as worthy targets of His judgment, we were rebels and we were enemies of him, even if we didn't know it. But on the cross, Jesus took the punishment of our sin that our sin deserved, and his sacrifice turned away the judgment we would have received. We easily think how this shows the love of Jesus, but John wants us to understand it also shows the love of, the, of God the Father. He loved us and sent his Son to be this propitiation for our sins. So he goes on in verse 11 to say, Beloved, I love that, beloved. He's already saying, you're loved. Beloved, if God loved us in this way, we ought to love one another. We should love others in this way. And notice in verse 12, no one has ever seen God, but when they see how we love one another, how people who are loved by God love each other, when people see that, they should be able to see the characteristics of the invisible God. So this is what the gospel tells us in, in community. The gospel, this idea that I can be loved, not because of anything of myself, but because of this propitiation, this sacrifice that Jesus made that turns away God's wrath. Listen, when I say here this morning that God loves the church, and so you are loved, it's possible that you're listening and you're not part of the church. You're, you're not part of those who have been saved. You've never put your faith and belief in Jesus Christ. And so I would just caution you, don't hear this like God loves you no matter what. God loves the ones who have trusted Jesus and the ones who trust in the fact that Jesus made the payment that turned God's wrath away so that that wrath is no longer aimed at them. Listen, if you've never done that, God's wrath is still aimed at you. It's not true of you that God loves you because you haven't believed in the thing that allows him to, to see the payment of sin so that he can love you because of the righteousness of Christ on you. Maybe today is the day that you need to turn to Christ. You need to believe in this. You need to recognize that, that God has loved you and offered his son for you and you're going to stop rejecting him and you're going to start putting your trust in him here today. In all of this, we're seeing that 
the way Jesus gave himself up for the church demonstrates that he loves the church greatly. Here, here's the second thing that we, we need to see, and it comes from Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, we see this. Uh, Peter uh, confesses that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says that on that confession of faith uh, here, that's going to be the confession of belief that we all need to make, that we need to see. He says, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So the second thing that we can see about God loving the church is that I will build my church in the gates of hell. Cannot stop it. Jesus is passionate about building his church. You need to realize that the church is not a human invention. It's established by Jesus Christ. And so in that, we see that he, Jesus loves the church and he's going to protect the building of the church. Actually, he loves it so much that he calls it many different things. It's a concept that's really more than just a one-word uh, definition to understand, kind of like God himself. You know that many words are used to describe God. God is the shepherd, and God is the lion, and God is the lamb. All of these things talking about different attributes because the concept of God is so large. And the concept of Jesus' love for the church is so big that there's many different words that he uses for it. Many times it's called the ecclesia. That's the Greek word that means uh, a called out assembly. Uh, but we also see it's the way and it's the body and it's the bride and the holy temple. It's made up of kings and priests and it's the family of God and the home for citizens. And it's a community of disciples. All of that representing that, that the church is so precious to him that not one name is used by Jesus. He uses many names to describe it, to describe his love for it. You know, sometimes we get embarrassed about the church. Sometimes we see the many different failings that go on in the church. Sometimes we see how messed up we've made this precious and beautiful thing that Jesus loves. And we're like, man, I just, I just don't know if I want to be a part of it anymore. But I want you to understand that God sees that more clearly. He sees those faults and failures more clearly than you and I could ever possibly do. And yet he still loves the church. Here's a third scripture to help us here this morning. And it comes from 1 Timothy chapter 3. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, uh, Paul is writing to Timothy, uh, and he says, If I delay, if I can't show up on time, uh, you may know, uh, I've written these things so that you might know how, how you ought, ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and the buttress of truth. So, Paul is writing to Timothy here, and he says that Jesus loves to be identified with the church. He trusts the reputation of our behavior for people to know him. Which I gotta tell you, sometimes I think that that's a terrible plan because my behavior is, and the behavior of others, not always really the reputation that Jesus wants. But think about how much Jesus loves the church to trust the church. And the behavior, he says, how you ought to behave in the household of God is how I am held up as a pillar. And your behavior is the pillar and support of people understanding who I am. So what we see here is that our behavior 
matters immensely. It supports the truth of who Jesus is. And people, I want you to see here how we love one another in the church matters immensely because how we do that, if we fail in it or if we're doing it really well, whatever it is, it holds up the reputation and the truth of who Jesus is. And it supports the truth of Jesus as we interact with one another in this way. So, In all of this, what I've been trying to help us see here today is that disciples who are loved, love God and love people. They love Jesus' church. Listen, if if you're loved by God and you're pursuing the things that he loves, then you love the church. That means uh, that it's not just a feeling, but that there's activity involved. It means that you give to it and you help build it and you contribute to the reputation of it. And you're mindful that these things are being modeled by model of who Jesus is in all of that. So in application, let me just say it one more time here today. Disciples who are loved, love God and people. What we mean by that is love disciples give to what Jesus loves. If, if you are loved by Jesus, you're going to give yourself to the things that Jesus loves. So that means that you're going to give to Jesus worship and service because that's right and proper. And we're going to talk about those things uh, in the next six or so sermons. But I want to focus a little bit more here. We don't just give to Jesus, we give to others. Disciples who are loved, love God and love people. They're going to give themselves in love to people as well. We're going to give ourselves to others in the church with fellowship and finances. Let me just explain that here for a moment. Let's just riff on this for a second. We need to commit ourselves to the fellowship of believers in the church that we are attending. Let me introduce to you an important New Testament word. The word is koinonia. It's a Greek word that would be used to describe fellowship or really the idea of sharing, shared togetherness. And so we see this in a number of different places. We see this in Scripture. The first is this. We see it in our relationship with Jesus and one another. That's called koinonia. That's called fellowship. And so in 1 John 1.3 it says, Uh, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Our relationship with Jesus and one another is called fellowship. It's called koinonia. But we also see it's our, our common work to spread the gospel is called koinonia. So in Philippians 1.5, it says this, Paul writing, he says, because of your partnership in the gospel from this day forward. This idea of partnership is this idea of koinonia, this this togetherness, this fellowship of sharing together in the mission of the gospel going forward. Uh, There's a third uh, example. We see that it's our common reception of the Holy Spirit. In Philippians 2.1, it says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, if any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, and we're just cutting the verse off there, but what we see here is this idea of participation, this, this participation with the Holy Spirit this is, is, is uh, where we see t- shared togetherness in the body of, of Christ. Here's number four. It's our common experience in the sufferings of Jesus. We see this in Philippians 3.10. It says, That I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death. 
our shared sufferings are a koinonia, a, a fellowship together, a, a loving of one another that we are to have together. Interestingly, uh, we're going to observe the Lord's table, and it is also co called koinonia. Uh, we see in 1 Corinthians 10, it says, The cup of blessing that we bless is not, is it not a participation, a koinonia, in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation, a koinonia, in the body of Christ? You see, when we observe the communion table together, when we observe the elements, we're actually koinonia, we're fellowshipping, we're sharing in Christ in that moment and in those ways. And then our last thing that we would see is that our common giving of resources is called koinonia or sharing. So in 2 Corinthians 8, it says, it says that the, the church was begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. The idea of taking part togetherness. And then in Hebrews 13, 16, it says, Do not, do not neglect to do good and to share, koinonia, what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Listen, as we share with one another, as we give in material resource to one another, that, that's something that's pleasing to God because it's koinonia. It's, it's loving each other the way that Christ has loved us. So, so let's just talk about this here for a second. We should give financially to God's work. That's part of how we love God, is giving financially to His work. And what we see in 1 Corinthians 16 is that we should give proportionally. Uh, as it says, as you prosper, you should give. And what that means is simply, if you're making 500 ringgit a week, that you would take a portion of that, maybe 50 ringgit of that, and that you would give it uh, to the work of God. But if suddenly you got an amazing raise and now you're making a thousand ringgit a week, you wouldn't just keep giving 50 ringgit a week, you would proportionally give. You would maybe give a hundred ringgit a week to the, to the work of God in that way. Many times there's debate about what kind of proportion, how much of a percentage should I give? And I just would remind you, the Old Testament taught that it was 10%. And I don't believe that as we live under the new covenant, that that means that it's less than that. But the New Testament is so concerned about the heart that it doesn't tell us the exact amount because God wants to work in your heart to help you understand what that is. So many times people ask, well, where should I start? Where should I start? I don't know that I could give 10% and still have a normal living. And I would just say, uh, between you and the Lord, figure out what you should give and then honor the Lord with that. And if you start at 2% or 6% or something like that, you and the Lord figure the, figure the proportion out. But I would just say, honor Him. Like off the top, from the beginning, uh, that's the first thing that you do when you, get, when you get that thousand ring in a month or whatever it is. It's, that's what you give uh, to the Lord uh, in that way. One more thing about giving uh, to the church that God loves. I believe that we should give to the place that directly feeds you spiritually. And really, this comes right out of, right out of 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 9, verse 11. It says uh, this, If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? Paul's writing and he's teaching that church, the Corinthian church, how to give. And he's saying, listen, if, if your soul is being fed by someplace spiritually, uh, th that, that's the focus place that you should be giving. Now, we have a lot of options of where to give, and there's a lot of need in the world. And I, I know many of you are so generous in many different places, and I think that's a good thing. I don't think that you have to only give uh, to our church. 
But uh, one of the things I find is that many times as we have different options to give to, we give to many different places, but we neglect giving to the congregation, to the church that God has placed us in and for those things. And so I just wanted to be clear about this here today, that as, as we see how Christ loves the church and gave himself for the church, that we too can love the church and give of ourselves in many different ways. We have this fellowship that we should commit ourselves to. One small portion, obviously, is the giving. And I'm not here trying to, trying to force you into any sort of giving element here at the church, just trying to faithfully teach God's word to you to show how Christ gave and how we too can give in this as well. We've been asking the question, what does Christ love? Because we're recognizing that as we fall in love with Jesus, we begin to love the things that he loves. And so we've seen, first of all, that Jesus loves the church. But I also want you to know that Jesus loves something else very much, and that's the lost. Jesus loves the lost, and that's why I am sent. I'm not just loved. I'm sent. And that comes right from God's word, right from the gospel of John, right from the lips of Jesus, just like we've seen already here this morning. We've seen that Jesus says, as the Father loves me, I love you, so abide in my love. And he said that before he went up on the cross and paid the penalty, did the propitiation act, the sacrifice that turned God's wrath away. If we believe in that, we have this amazing salvation. We can abide. And we we can abide uh, in that love. But I would also say that love is not just for us to hoard for ourselves. He wants you to do something as a result of that. And so after the cross, when he came down off that cross, on the very evening of resurrection, he helped us understand that you are not only loved, but you are sent. He said it this way in John chapter 20, verse 21. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. It's the evening of resurrection day. At the very beginning, some of the first words that Jesus records to the disciples are saying, I love you so much, I just died on the cross for you and paid for your sins, and so now I'm telling you what what I'm calling you to, and that is I'm sending you, just like I've been sent. Jesus doesn't tell us everything about being sent right here on the evening of Resurrection Sunday. He staggers it and he stacks it because the disciples couldn't handle everything that he needed to tell them in one sitting. I think they were so shocked about the resurrection that he gave them just little bits of pieces. And the first night he says, I'm sending you. And in that he says, I'm the model. Actually, there's a series of great commission statements And those are really important statements for us. We believe that we glorify God by fulfilling the Great Commission, by fulfilling what Jesus told us to do in these statements. And the first time that he gave the Great Commission, he says, I'm sending you in John 20, 21. And that's the model. As the Father sent me, I'm sending you. I'm the model, just the way I went into the world and gave myself for the world. I'm calling you to do the very same thing. And then in in the second time that Jesus chronologically uh, gave it is recorded in Mark 16, verse 15. Eight days later, we see that Jesus said, go in all the world and preach the gospel to all of creation. And he's telling us the magnitude, how big the task actually is. We are to go to every geographic region and to every single person in the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
That's what he revealed at the third time that he gave the Great Commission. In Luke chapter 24, we see here that he gives uh, the, the Great Commission uh, this third time, and in it, he tells us the message that we are supposed to give. He, he says it this way, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. That's the message that we are to give, that repentance and forgiveness of sins is proclaimed, that through Jesus Christ, you can admit that you were wrong and that you sinned and that you have no ability to save yourself and you can believe with a look of faith, believe in Jesus Christ and your soul is saved for eternity. That's the gospel message. Then in Matthew 28, he tells us the method of how we are to do it. He says we're supposed to go make disciples of Jesus. That means followers of Jesus, people who know the teaching of Jesus and then become obedient to it and follow him faithfully under the power of the Holy Spirit all of their life. And then in Acts chapter 8, the last time Jesus gave a great commission statement before he ascended into heaven, he told us the means that we have to do what he is telling us to. He, the, the, the means is the Holy Spirit. I'm leaving the Holy Spirit with you, he said. And so it's this, this uh, amazing thing where the Holy Spirit and myself and you work together in a way that makes the message of Jesus Christ known to everyone everywhere because Jesus is our model for doing so. Disciples who are sent serve God and serve people. So let's say it together right now. Wherever you're sitting, you're sitting together or in your room by yourself, just say the words, I am sent. Let's do that. Say it. I am sent. I'm not just loved, I'm sent. And that means I have a purpose and I have significance in life. Regardless of your station in life, you are to follow the model of Jesus anywhere you go. And to any person you meet, you're supposed to proclaim the gospel by making and make disciples of them in the power of the Holy Spirit. So that means disciples who are sent, they serve God and they serve people. Notice, serve God, they carry out his mission. They complete and fulfill the Great Commission, is how we say it. And so they're passionate about that. But notice, secondly, they serve people. Lost people need to hear the gospel. And God has chosen that he would use you and I as his witnesses for that. So just in application, think of it this way. Disciples who are sent serve God and serve people. Sent disciples follow the model of Jesus Christ. I believe they serve God by getting into community. If we see what they did in the very first church, we begin to understand this more clearly. It says in Acts chapter 2, verses 46 to 47, a beautiful picture of community and them being together in this way. It says, And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Notice here that they served God by being the community, being the church that he loves. And then it was God who was the one that was adding people to their numbers. In that, I think we see really our, the priority that we have to abide together, that we are supposed to be together, that God far more wants us to be together, being the church that we are supposed to be, that, that as we love one another, that's such a powerful witness to those around us that he can add people to us in that way. 
So we are to serve God if we are sent. And in the second part of that statement, we are to serve people. We need to realize we are not a closed community. Just because they were gathering together in the early church, it wasn't like they were saying that people can't be a part of the church. They were welcoming new people in. They were making it something where they were witnessing to those who were coming and saying, this is for you. So many times it's been said that the church looks more like a museum for the saints rather than a hospital for sinners. And I would just tell you right now, I mean, even if we are a museum for saints, like, have you looked recently? We're not that great. Like, it's not that great of a museum in and of ourselves. But when we understand we are a hospital for sinners, this is a place where you can come for healing and help. That's a spot where then you can say, come, it doesn't matter who you are. I invite you to be a part of my church. We're not a museum for saints. We're a hospital for sinners. May that be said of Harvest KL. What that means, though, is as we say you're welcomed here, we're saying you're welcome to the mess that we are. And sometimes that would be embarrassing because we don't always have our act together. But, but let me just ask you a question. It's a vision question. What if it were a safe place here at Harvest KL? What if it were a safe place to repent? What would that say and mean to those who are coming? So let me just get super practical for a moment. As we begin kind of a new model of ministry starting next week, we're doing what's called Harvest KL at Home. Harvest KL at Home is just an opportunity for people to get together in, in their homes and watch the service together and interact with each other the way the body of Christ is supposed to. And I would just say to you that as we begin this Harvest KL at Home initiative, this is not just a place to show up. Because the church should be more than a collection of consumers. We're not called just to come and receive. We're really called to come and give. If we're going to love the church the way we're supposed to, we, we're supposed to give ourselves like Christ did. If, if we're going to understand we are sent, then it's not just something for me. It's to bring somebody else along and to be a part of this as well. And so I want you to realize as we begin this initiative, uh, you're sent. You are sent. So you need to serve God and serve people by, number one, inviting others into, into homes. Listen, we need people to host. Last week we did a survey. We, uh, we have uh, 60 people who want to get together at a Harvest, at K, K, Harvest Kale at Home location. And, and at, at that point, we only had three people who were hosting. Well, you have to understand something. Uh, hosting in your home is, is an opportunity for us because we believe smaller is better. That's different than the way the world normally says things. Normally the world says bigger is better, but we believe smaller is better in the Harvest KL at Home model. Uh, we think that it's better if there's one or two people extra at your house, you being the host, but lots of those places around the city rather than a f only one or two places that have a lot of people gathered together. Not only is that smart in the time that we live in and respectful to the issue of, uh, issues of the day, but I believe it's a better model of mission that we are called to, to realize I'm sent. My house doesn't have to be pristine and clean. My house doesn't even have to hold a lot of people. I could invite one or two people over and we could watch the service together and interact with one another. And that would be far better because I am loving people and serving people because I know I'm loved and I'm sent. 
What we're saying here is that abiding results in pursuing the things that Jesus loves. And what we found here today is Jesus loves the church. And he wants us to love the thing he loves. He wants us to love the church and to give ourselves to the fellowship of the church in that way. We found too that Jesus loves the lost. I think many of you would already know that without today's message. But in that, would it spur you into action? Because disciples who are sent serve God and serve others around them. Would you put that into practice and into action rather than just knowing about it? Remaining in God's love means I'm going to learn how to love what God loves. And we're going to go on a journey the next six weeks to look at six different pursuits, uh, the things that God loves that we can learn to love as well in that. But today, abide together is the foundation. You are loved and you are sent. And that means you're loved and so you need to commit yourself to the community and to the fellowship of it. And you're sent, and that means that you need to invite others to be a part of that very community. That's God's design. That's God's plan. That's what he loves. Remember what he said. He, he said in John chapter 15, it was so clear. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide, remain, stay vitally connected to what I love. That's how you abide in my love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful that you love us and that you sent your Son as the sacrifice that satisfied the wrath of our sin. Lord, I pray for those who are just believing that for the first time or it's just becoming clear to them for the first time. Could you, God, would you work powerfully in their heart? Would the Holy Spirit indwell them? And Lord, would you just overwhelm them with the great sense of love that you have for them? Lord, for those who are growing in that understanding, would you increase that today? And would there just be this incredible pressure of your love for them being revealed? And then, Lord, for those of us who have received that love, would you just again help us to commit to the things that you are committed to, to love your church the way that you have loved, to fellowship to, with the church the way you have called us to. And then in, in that, Lord, to understand we are sent to bring others to that as well. Lord, would you teach us as a church these things here this morning? Let us learn how to abide together, I pray. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to abide in communion together in just a moment. Why don't you just take a few seconds now. We're going to give you some time to grab some of the elements and just prepare your hearts. And then we'll lead you through the communion in just one moment. Let's do that now. 